Amen. Thanks, Austin. <clears throat> so we're finishing a, a series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, my name is Jonathan, by the way, uh, if you didn't hear that from Austin. Um, and uh, as we round uh, third base to home plate, so to speak, next week with uh, Easter, uh, we're going to look at Mark 15, uh, which is Mark's account of the crucifixion. So uh, somewhat sobering and ironic in a way, but kind of neat at the same time that today is Palm Sunday, uh, and we are reflecting on this passage from uh, a week, really five days later in the life of Jesus. So in your worship folder, you can follow along there, a couple of different sections here from Mark 15, or it'll be on the screen behind me. So follow along as I read. This is God's word. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man, named, man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Would you say with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, amen. <clears throat> this is, uh, as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark's account uh, of the beating, the mockery, the crucifixion, and the burial of Jesus. And as I said a minute ago, this passage stands in stark contrast to 
today in the church calendar, Palm Sunday, when as he's riding in and they're laying palm branches and their cloaks down on the ground and hailing him, uh, just a few days later, they would be yelling, crucify him. So as we look at this passage, it's quite, quite long, it's 47 verses, the whole chapter, and so of course we had to pick out some things here and there. But what I'm going to do is look at it under three headings, and those are the three headings in your uh, worship folder on the outline. And you'll see it there, looking at first this idea of Jesus as the substitution, the experience of Jesus, this idea of a felt darkness and what he endured. And then lastly, what is it about the way Jesus dies? And this is the last verse that I read, just meditating on this last verse Verse 39, it says, when the centurion saw him in this way, what was it about in this way that produced the confession that the centurion made? So those three things, as we meditate on the cross, uh, and, you know, we're going to meditate on it some today, and then uh, Friday, at our Good Friday service, we'll meditate on it again. Uh, But I hope you don't think about this and go, I mean, enough about the cross already. Um, We would be remiss if we were not meditating on the cross daily, uh, but especially at this time of the year. Now, if you go back to the reading of the law uh, from Isaiah 53, it's in your worship folder there, uh, what we're watching in this first part of Mark uh, 15, we're watching the Lamb of God. We are watching a willing victim in a traitor's place. In fact, in Mark 15, uh, in verse 11, Mark uses the word, you see it there, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas, what? Instead. So Mark's cluing you in. Jesus is the substitute. Jesus is being crucified. Jesus is being uh, condemned instead of Barabbas. The crowd and the chief priests want him released, and they want Jesus in his place. He's taking the place of a murderer, because that's what Isaiah said he would do. Look back there uh, again. He has borne our griefs, Isaiah said, instead of us. He has carried our sorrows instead of us carrying our sorrows. He was pierced instead of us for our transgressions. He was crushed instead of us for our iniquities. Well, why, why is a substitute so important? Why is a substitute needed? John Stott, uh, and the book should be there uh, noted in the resources for you, The Cross of Christ, fantastic book. If you have not had a chance to read that or seen that before, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. But John Stott says this in that book, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Because, see, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, so God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Without substitution, we are doomed. In fact, if you go all the way back to page three of the Bible, 
After the man and the woman sin in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says God clothed them with skins. Well, where did he get the skins? An animal. An animal had to be sacrificed so that Adam and Eve could be covered. An, an animal had to be substituted, lose its life, so that Adam and Eve could keep theirs. And then in the Exodus, the blood of the lamb covered the family as the angel of death passed over them. They put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And as the angel of death passed over, if the angel of death didn't see the blood covering them, the blood of a substitute, then their firstborn would have been killed. But instead of their blood being shed, the lamb was killed instead. The cross is where the substitution comes home in technicolor. Paul says in his uh, letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3 verse 1, he says, guys, what is wrong with you? Who has bewitched you? Who has fooled you, he says. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, what's he talking about? Surely, he can't mean that all the Galatian church members were there at the crucifixion because, of course, they weren't. But he's saying in the preaching of the gospel, in the presentation of the gospel, in describing the cross and what Jesus endured as the substitute on the cross... You are seeing him publicly portrayed in technicolor as crucified. And today we get the privilege of hearing him publicly portrayed as crucified in the word and then seeing him in the table in communion. See, there's a real tension throughout the entire Bible because this idea of substitute brings together two things. It brings together the justice of God a God who enforces his law, who has to enforce his law and punish disobedience to it, but also the love of God, his kindness, his mercy, his pardoning grace. When Moses in Exodus says to the Lord, show me your glory, and he hides him in the cleft, and he, and he passes by, the Lord passes by, Exodus 34, verse 7, and the Lord describes himself as, do you remember, one who forgives sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, how does he do both of those things? His law has to be kept. His love has to be exercised. How does that get resolved? Well, because God is loving, but he's also just. And on the cross, both of the realities meet and they're dealt with. And only in a substitute is that accomplished. And in Jesus, the substitute, it's accomplished for good. All the other substitutes in the sacrificial system, over all the years leading up to Jesus, they were temporary. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that. He says, hey, all of the blood of all the bulls and goats from all of the many years does not satisfy. It will not forgive sin ultimately and finally. Only the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute, Jesus himself. And so the cross is the bringing together of God's love and God's justice. His justice is satisfied. His love is on display. And because of the substitutionary death of Jesus, if your faith is in him, then actually the law, instead of being against you, turns to being for you. It demands your acceptance. How is that? Well, because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly in his life because he never sinned. And in his death, because he was made sin. Paul says that in our assurance of pardon, 2 Corinthians 5 he who knew no sin was made sin. 
And the cross makes God's acceptance of me possible. Not only possible, but in a sense, it makes justice demanding of his acceptance of me because he's already received full payment for my sins. He can't require double payment. So for you and I, if your faith is in Christ, to look at the cross, it's to demand justice. Justice from God. That he would see you, that he would see me, and he would remember that the full payment for our sins has already been received. John Newton's uh, hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, puts it like this in one of the verses. I love this verse. I love the whole hymn, but especially this verse. It goes like this. Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He got it, right? John Stott again says the cross consists in the combination of inflexible righteousness with its penalties and its consequences and transcendent love come together. All of God's characteristics are expressions of his holiness. And so one commentator on Mark 15 said this, it is the holiness of God's love that necessitates the atoning cross. You have to have both of them. The love and wrath of God are both for you at the same time accomplished by the cross. And they can't be separated. Now, of course, problems arise. Problems arise when we tend to side with one aspect or the other because we might like, we might want to emphasize, we might enjoy one side and have a tough time with the other. Obviously, for, for, for many of us, it's, well, we, we want to talk about the love and the mercy and the grace of God, have a hard time talking about the wrath of God or the inflexible righteousness of God. But if we have a tough time living in the tension, we're going to fall into a ditch on either side. And spiritually speaking, we can begin to act like either neglected children or spoiled children. And here's how that works. If you have a God who's nothing but wrath, and if you have a little understanding of what happened on the cross, then you'll be a driven person. You'll try very hard to be moral. You'll try hard to be good, but you'll always feel unworthy. You'll be afraid to take risks because you're afraid of messing up, messing, messing up failing, right? Oftentimes, it will cause you to be isolated because you don't want to confide in anyone all the deep hidden sins you have. God is just playing a big game of whack-a-mole with your life, right? So the next time you screw up, he's going to smack you. And consequently, it will be hard to grow into a loving person because fear can't awaken love. You'll be hidden. You'll try. You'll make everybody think that everything is okay. But deep down inside, you feel unworthy. You'll know you're a failure. And you'll be full of fear. Only love can awaken and make a person more loving. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. You need more of the transcendent love of God, right? If you have nothing but a God who is full of wrath, you need more of the transcendent love of God. On the other hand, if you have a God who never says no, never confronts you, always gives you what you want, well, from him or from it, you'll want advice You'll want inspiration, but you won't want a God. Not a holy sovereign with inflexible righteousness, with rules and standards, with consequences for breaking the rules. See, consequently, you'll be tempted to live as you see fit. Well, 
you, that person, who's tending to kind of fall into that ditch, they need more of the inflexible righteousness displayed at the cross. They need to see the cross, and they need to see the judgment of God on Jesus. The previous person needs to look at the cross and see the mercy of God that comes through in Jesus' work, Jesus' substitution, Jesus' being being publicly crucified instead of you. But if you come to understand and come to embrace more of that righteousness, you'll be freed from the tyranny of desires that are never going to satisfy you because the more the cross becomes precious to you, the more lovely his voice becomes. Duty turns into choice. As William Cooper said in one of his hymns, you want to live more and more as he sees fit because of what he did. And see, the only way that you can hold these two things in tension, as the Bible does so well, actually, only holding that tension can keep us from thinking God is mainly holy with a little love peppered in or mainly loving with a little holiness peppered in. Instead, he is both holy and loving equally, interdependently, And only this view of God makes the spoiled or the neglected into the healthy and the loved. So the cross is is, is where our substitute brought these two realities together. But what was it like? What was Jesus' reality there? And I, I, it's hard to explain this. It's hard to make sense of this. But there is this darkness that is pervading the whole thing. If you go back over the last couple of pages, everything that is unjust, everything that is wicked, everything that is happening to Jesus contrary to the righteousness of God, really, it's all happening at the cloak of darkness. It's all happening at night. And in fact, verse 1 of Mark 15 says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And the reason they had to do that very first thing in the morning was because the Romans handled all their judicial matters first thing in the morning as soon as the sun came up. Because by midday, I mean, let's be honest, everybody's tired. It's time to relax. And the Romans took a siesta for the rest of the day because they, you know, liked their pleasure too. And so these guys had to get this taken care of. And even now, in the cloak of darkness, as the the sun is peaking and Jesus has been up all night, they begin to move in this direction. And so you get to halfway through the day, and as Jesus is put on the cross and crucified, verse 33 says, when the sixth hour had come, that is noon. And so from noon to 3 p.m., it's dark. Now, what's the darkest place you've ever been? Have you ever experienced a darkness that's so profound that you felt it? I'm, I'm talking, may have been a physical darkness, may have been out in the woods, you didn't have a light, uh, maybe you were on a boat, uh, anchored up, there was a new moon, so the sky was very dark. Whatever it is, wherever you've experienced that, I'll tell you about a time I experienced a a profound spiritual darkness. And it was uh, on a trip to Haiti some years ago. I had the opportunity, the guy that was uh, my host 
was uh, said, hey, I, I want to take you to this voodoo shrine that is a national voodoo shrine. And in fact, they're getting it ready for a big festival next week. And so the roads will be nice and uh, smooth and everything will be clean. I, I, I want you to see kind of how profoundly shaped by voodoo our country is. I said, okay. So we went. It was actually myself and Rick Lear and a few other guys. And as soon as we stepped out of the car, we felt, I looked at Rick, Rick looked at me. He said, do you feel that? I said, yeah, there's just this pervasive darkness. There's like someone was pressing down on us. Have you ever experienced a darkness that you can feel? In Exodus chapter 10, uh, the plague of darkness uh, is promised. And Moses uh, says this. I meant to have this marked. I apologize because I wanted to read it to you. This is Exodus 10, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Only here, verse 33, Mark, Mark 15. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the Greek, Mark says, the whole earth is dark. Because, of course, judgment is falling not on the land or people like the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. This time, God is judging Jesus. In fact, the whole earth is being implicated in the death of Jesus, not just the Jews. Darkness is over the whole land. Because you probably know the verse, God so loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only son. And because he loved the world... The whole world had to experience the judgment of Jesus. And so as Jesus is uh, there on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean to be God forsaken? Have you ever used that word? Please get me out of this God forsaken place. It's the reason why as I'm driving north on I-75, I never stop in Gainesville. It's a God forsaken place. And obviously I'm kidding when I say that, but, but when you use that term, you mean something very stark, very graphic, right? Very profound. What does it mean to be God forsaken? This is cosmic loneliness unlike anyone has ever experienced. Jesus is utterly forsaken by his friends, by his countrymen, by his disciples, by the governing authorities. And as Mark describes it here, by even the earth as it is covered in darkness, and then, most significantly, by his Father in heaven. He doesn't say on the cross, my hands, my hands, right? My head, my head. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you came up to me today after the service and said, please don't do this, by the way. But if you came up to me after the service and said, I don't ever want to talk to you again. I think, I think Brad's thinking about maybe saying that. He's laughing. Uh, if you said that, that would hurt. And that would sadden me. But if my wife, Jamie, came to me and said the same thing today, I'd be devastated. Well, why is that? Well, of course, the longer and the deeper the love, the more tormenting the loss of it would be. Now, imagine having a length of love that is eternal. 
by this love, this communion, Jesus and his Father had enjoyed from all eternity. It was infinitely long. It was absolutely perfect. But in order to save his people, Jesus had to experience the full onslaught of the loneliness of being truly God-forsaken. He had to experience the darkness, the disorientation, the disintegration of hell itself. See, the orbit of Jesus' world had always, from all eternity, it had been his Father, his Father's pleasure, his Father's will. If you read John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying in his what we call high priestly prayer, you get a little snippet into this, of the types of things that he says that he's enjoyed with his dad from all eternity and how he longs to share that with us. But this isn't the time or place for that. Read that later and be amazed. But it does give you a little glimpse into what he's experiencing here in the loss of all of that. Jesus loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength from the moment he woke up in the morning until he closed his eyes at night. The trajectory of his life was pointed directly at his father. And yet here, on the cross, in the darkness, under the darkness, under the weight of this felt darkness, he experienced life as a sinner, as a person whose life trajectory is pointed away from God. He was disoriented. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was disintegrating. His body was literally falling apart. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're investigating Christianity, we believe that life apart from Jesus is darkness. You're, you're in darkness. We believe that life apart from Jesus is empty. And listen, we live in a time where it's believed that identity is made, not received. And if you center your life on anything but God, your identity will be lost. It'll be fragile. It'll be insecure. Always be up in the air because it's based on human approval or your performance. Those things are constantly in flux, right? All this happens in darkness. And the funny thing about darkness is, of course, you can't see yourself as you really are. If you had a gigantic pimple on your cheek or, you know, you had a black eye or some, something wrong with your face or your body, you need someone else to see you to tell you that. In the darkness, you can't see yourself as you really are. But here's the good news. Because of the darkness, the darkness for Jesus was the hell of forsakenness, the absence of God's favor and goodness. For the Christian, if your faith is in Christ, there is no darkness you experience that can destroy you. God can't abandon you. God's affections are set on you. Notice I said God can't abandon you. Remember, his justice demands uh, that he, he accept you in Jesus because he's already received payment from Jesus. God's affections are set on you because the Savior's obedience and blood hide all your transgressions from view. The cross is the proof of God's love for us in Jesus and the proof that he understands what it means to suffer. That's what makes Christianity so unique. You're not going to find a Savior anywhere else. Like this. So if you go back up to verse 34, what's the answer? Jesus asks a question My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the answer? Why have you forsaken me, God? And the Father was saying, For them. 
So if you're wondering today, why was Jesus forsaken? I would say to you, it was for you. It was for me. It was for us. He's experiencing our judgment day. He's experiencing our darkness right there thousands of years ago. Now, how do we know that it worked? How do we know that the substitution was accepted? Well, Mark tells us two things that happened, and this is where we'll finish, the last two verses that I read there, verse 38 and 39, okay? Look there, both of these verses are so incredibly profound. How do we know it worked? Well, Mark says two things happened. Number one, the curtain was torn in two. Well, what's the significance of this curtain? What's the curtain he's talking about? This was the wall, and it was called a curtain, but it may as well have been a wall because it was very thick, very large, and people kind of viewed it. The Jews kind of viewed it as a wall. And it was a wall separating the people from the presence, from the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. And only one person, one day a year, got to enter. And even then, He had to bring a blood sacrifice on behalf of the people's sins as well as a blood sacrifice on behalf of his own sins. And even then, they tied a rope around him in case the sacrifice didn't go well and something happened to him in there and he died, they had to pull him out because no one was going in the Holy of Holies. But Jesus dies and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to to bottom, the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top, because of course it's not our working our way up to get to God, it's God coming to us from the top to the bottom. That is significant. It's a reminder that of course the message of Christianity is a message of grace. When Jesus died, the Father was saying, the way is now open to approach me for anyone Anyone who believes in him can see God and connect to him intimately like Jesus did. Now, again, go back to Genesis chapter 3 for a minute. How does the chapter end? You may recall, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the way that chapter ends is that Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, are exiled from the garden, and a flaming sword is put in place to bar them from re-entering. And here's the thing, when Jesus, the ultimate substitute, died, the curtain was torn because the way into Eden was opened. The sword plunged into the heart of Jesus. He's the second Adam. The second Adam makes walking and talking with God in the cool of the day possible for anyone. Centurion, prostitute, tax collector, married, divorced, addict, gossip, greedy, insecure, codependent, everyone is welcomed in. And who's one of the first ones in? I love this part. Who is one of the first ones in? A Gentile. Not just a Gentile, a Roman. Verse 39, the second thing that happened, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. That's the response. I mean, if you read through Mark 15 or read through the last couple of chapters of any of the Gospels, you will notice something very uh, profound. There is no one apathetic. There is no one who's experiencing all of this and going, hmm, interesting. There's no one going, eh. I mean, 
People are either mocking him, spitting on him, crucifying him, hating him. Even those who are passing by are sneering at him because crucifixion was such a public, humiliating way to die. The earlier battalion of soldiers in Mark 15 is putting a purple robe on him and putting a crown of thorns on him and mocking him and bowing down to him and Oh, hail, king of the Jews, just so much mockery. I was so convicted this week about my, well, mockery. And some of you know me better than others. I've probably mocked you. Please forgive me. In all seriousness, I was really convicted this week because all the people in this story who are mocking, it's not a spiritual gift. They hate Jesus. There's no one apathetic here. So you've got all this mockery going on, and then you've got verse 39. And here's the thing, a faith sight of Jesus. Because look at what Mark says. Very very slowly, let me read. When the centurion who stood facing him head on, and it's only a faith sight of Jesus, that's the only way to believe like the centurion. It was only as he watched him die in this way that produced a confession as stunning as this one. Mark is saying that one of the first people to go into the Holy of Holies was a Gentile, a Roman, a centurion, who was an enlisted commoner, a guy who had probably seen and a guy who had probably inflicted a lot of death in his life. I want you to think Braveheart, Spartacus, and 300 all at the same time. Some of you may not know the movie 300. If you don't, probably shouldn't go watch it either. It's pretty violent. It's about the Spartans. But we're talking, that's what a Roman centurion was. This man knew death. But something amazing had penetrated the darkness of his heart. And it was in this way. It was the way that Jesus died. When Jesus is alive, humanity is willing his death. But it's only in his death that humanity can see him as the way to life. It's his tenderness. It's his beauty, humility. We know from other gospels that he made various statements. The centurion heard them all. From this man undergoing the torture of crucifixion, he said things like this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Woman, he said to his mother, behold your son. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he said to one of the men next to him. It is finished. Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. And so as we come to the table, I would ask you, what's your response to Jesus? Face him. Look at the way in which he died. There's no tepid, there's no lukewarm response to the cross. It's either turning away in disgust, mocking his suffering. What a wimp. He saved others. Doesn't seem like he can save himself. He told us that he would rebuild the temple in three days. What are you doing now? You either look at him that way, or it's facing him head on, considering in this way of death and confessing that he indeed was who he said he was. All your trust, all your hope, all your failures and miseries in him. You can only go all in, like the centurion. And if you go all in, that becomes the power source for a person 
who in Jesus and following Jesus becomes a person who will substitute themselves, who will die and inconvenience and disadvantage themselves in the same way. Let's pray and ask that he would produce that in us as we come to the table here. Lord Jesus, we do, uh, we do just pause to consider and meditate on and wonder at what you've done and how we have to be honest. Sometimes the familiarity with it is too easy for us to just continue to be blown away by it. And so we pray that you would produce in us the same type of amazement, the same type of wonder, the same type of staring at you, facing you head on, and seeing what way, in what way you died. And that as we catch a faith sight of that, it would warm our hearts, it would transform our hearts from stone to flesh, and we would become, like the centurion was here, worshipers. Change us, we pray, uh, into those who do not look from afar, but those who stare you down face head on and say, truly, this is the Son of God. Truly, this is the Savior of the world. Thank you for loving the world so that you would give your one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, amen. The only way that you can sing that uh, is because it was not well uh, with Jesus' soul uh, as he hung on the cross. Uh, but praise be to God, he bore our sin so that we wouldn't have to. And now we can go free, uh, free to obey uh, and free to love uh, in him. So receive this benediction, cling to it. Uh, may it be the fuel source for you as you go into uh, another week. Uh, full of opportunities, uh, full of no one knows what, right? Uh, but we do know that as we go, he goes with you. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.